Good morning. I invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, a place we've been recently. We're going to do something a little bit unusual this morning and next week. We're actually going to take a look again at a passage that Mark looked at last week. And uh, that's certainly not because Mark didn't do a good job with it, because if he hadn't done a good job, I wouldn't be the one to follow him. But uh, what we're wanting this morning is to stop and recognize, take a little bit of time on something Mark said last week. He, he made a comment about this passage where he said that uh, the core of Christian maturity was wrapped up in these first two verses that we're going to take a look at. And you may remember it from last week. I'll read Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. And uh, Mark made the comment, right off last week that not only was this a movement into a practical part of the book, because up until now we've had a foundational chapters 1 through 11, but he also said that in these two verses there was a summary of something essential to Christian maturity. And for that reason we're going to spend a little more time on it. Uh, these verses are so significant in my mind because as you'll see as we go on today, um, God used them in my life to, I think, move me from being a believer to being a disciple. He, he used these, these verses to help me understand that the goal of the Christian life is to become like Christ and that this is the process by which it happens. These verses explain the means by which your marital conflict can become unity. These verses contain within them the nugget, the essential nugget for a person who abuses alcohol to recognize I've got to stop lying to myself and others because I'm not able to manage this substance. It, it causes me to sin against God and against people I love. This, these two verses contain enough in them to help people who are prejudiced against people because of skin color to recognize, wait a minute, although I may have had that attitude in the past, I have to recognize that everybody is, is part of one race descended from Adam and Eve and that that person I'm looking at is either my sister or brother in Christ or that person is someone who needs Christ and that we're all made in the image of God. And any tendency that I might have to somehow judge or disparage on the basis of appearance is out of place because it's actually, it's actually an insult to God. These two verses have so much contained within them. Uh, regarding these two verses and their place in the book of Romans, Chuck Swindoll writes earlier, 
Paul described the gospel as the means by which the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. I envision that as grace coming down vertically from heaven. Paul then quoted Habakkuk, but the righteous man shall live by faith. That's grace flowing horizontally to others on earth. So we have this righteousness of God vertically revealed to us, the means by which you and I come into a relationship with God. But not only that, the righteous man shall live his or her life out by faith, and that has to do with our horizontal relationships. Um, Swindoll goes on to write, as I see it, grace flows down from heaven and then outward to others. The first 11 chapters reveal God and his righteous plan of vertical grace. But then with the words, therefore I urge you, Paul turns from a vertical orientation to a horizontal orientation. Believers as a body and believers as individuals stand at the intersection of God's grace from heaven and God's grace out to the world. That puts each believer in a crisis. What will I do with the grace that has been freely given to me from heaven? Will I hoard it for personal gain? Will I become a miser of living water? He writes, hopefully not. In my experience, grace turns stagnant unless it flows freely. See, that's the whole idea of the Christian life. The Christian life is that if you've come to faith in Christ, you were given something in order to give something. You were given something so that as Jesus pours himself out in you, you eventually learn increasingly how to pour yourself out into others. And really, you're not pouring yourself. I mean, you're involved, but you're pouring Christ out into others. But these two verses contain the nugget as to how that happens. Because I, for years, I've been a Christian 46 years, and, and for years, certainly in, in ministry in the last 40 years, um, I've heard people repeatedly say, I think I understand a lot of biblical concepts, but I don't know how to put it into practice. This passage tells us more in nugget form, in, in simple core form, how you put into practice the Christian life uh, than almost anything I can point to in the whole Bible. This Romans 12, 1 and 2, two-step, uh, in Texas we used to do a dance called the two-step, and I won't model that for you, partly because Diane's not up here with me, and partly because I really wasn't very good about it in the first place. But it's, it's got two elements, two elements to this Romans 12, 1, 2. First is the idea of presenting your body. Mark talked about that. You present your body to God as a living sacrifice. And then the second part is having presented your body before God, you do something else, which is you learn to stop conforming. In fact, it would be just as well to translate that verse, stop conforming to this world, and rather be renewed, transformed by the renewing of your mind. So it's part is just presenting yourself to God. Um, I can remember a time I did that in college. I had gone through a, a loss that was very painful and difficult for me, and I remember driving around town in Austin trying to figure out what to do with my life. And, and about midnight, I went up to a church that I know was open all night, and I remember going and sitting in the back pew planning to pray, and when I did, I sensed it's not right to be on the back pew. And so I went up to the altar, and I knelt. And I didn't really have a plan, 
But at that time, Romans 12.1 came to mind, and I said, Lord, I just present myself to you as a living sacrifice because I think the worst you're willing to do with me is better than the best I can do with myself. But the second part, the second part is this ongoing change that needs to take place. And I want us to see, lest we think that this is the only place that Paul says this or that the Scripture says this, I think what we'll find is that little principle of Romans 12, 1 and 2 is actually contained throughout the Bible. Let me give you a few examples. Isaiah 55, verse 7 and 8 reads, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, my thoughts than your thoughts. God lets us know in that little simple um, few words that the way you think is not the way I think. And by the way, he wasn't doing that like as a slap. It wasn't like he was saying, you stupid, you don't think like I do. It was an invitation. It was an invitation. It was your natural way of thinking is not like mine. I've got something better for you. Or Colossians 2 verse 8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. It's the same idea. It's the fact that we are by nature, our natural disposition is to be conformed to this world. I'm going to, in a a couple of minutes, share a couple of places that are examples of where I was conformed to this world's way of thinking. And I'm going to be interested to see if you identify with any of those because they were certainly true of me. And they became an opportunity for me to learn to put this principle into practice before I even knew this principle. But Colossians 2.8 is just a perfect example of the fact that you and I have the potential as believers to be captured by this world's way of thinking. In fact, that's the natural thing that happens. We actually have to go against that. That's why it had to be commanded in Romans 12.2. Or how about Proverbs 3, back in the Old Testament, Proverbs 3, verse 5, a verse that many of us would have maybe taught our kids when they were young. Uh, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Why? Why would we tell them that? Well, because your natural understanding is out of place. Your natural understanding will make sense to you, but it won't be accurate. And so even from a very young age, we need to actually to disbelieve our natural instinct at one level. I don't mean instincts never give us any direction. I don't mean that, but I'm just saying that instinctive sense, uh, there's another proverb that says, uh, uh, Proverbs uh, 16.25 or 14.12 that says, there's a way that seems right to a man, and the ends thereof are the ways of death. It's that same idea that what naturally comes to me or what I, what I grab from the environment around me isn't sound. Or how about Ephesians 4.23? Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. This is in a passage where he's talking about what happened when you became a Christian. When you became a Christian, you put off an old man. When you became a Christian, you put on a new man. And now part of the process of growing to live like that new man is that you need to have your mind steadily renewed. 
And, and the tense is a tense of something that is happening today but going on forever in the future until we're with the Lord. So being renewed is not something that happens when I'm 25 years old. I mean, it was. But it's something that's happening at 65. And it's something that ought to be happening at 85. It's an ongoing thing. Similarly, there's another word used in both the Old and New Testament, a word uh, translated in English, repent. And, and the word most commonly used in the New Testament for it is the word metanoia, which is made up of two Greek words, one meaning change and one meaning mind, or about or change and mind. So it's about changing the mind. That's what repentance is. So whenever you hear or read in the Bible about God calling people to repent, what he's really doing is he's saying, I want you to change from thinking what you were thinking, and I want you to go to thinking this way. Why? Well, because my thoughts are not like his thoughts. My ways are not like his ways. That's why I have to continually be renewed, an ongoing process of renewal. And so that's the idea. That's sort of the, uh, the, the backdrop, if you will, for what we're going to talk about the rest of today. It's this idea that when we get Romans 12, 1 and 2, it's not just two verses. It's not just the heading of a very practical part of the book. It's in a, a seed way, in a core way, it's the central truth to how you become like Christ. It's the central truth of Christian maturity. What I'd like to do today is I'd like to illustrate how this has taken place in my life using four passages that God taught me early in my Christian life. And I want to use them as illustrations for, for a couple of reasons. One, if any of the things I share with you are something you identify with, but God hasn't already shown you an answer for it, then this can be a blessing to you because you can, you can see a biblical truth and say, I needed that. And I pray that'll happen for some of you. A second reason that I think this is a, a, a good exercise is I hope that you, while you're listening and looking, will think about verses that God's used in your life to create a shift. Verses where he's helped you move from what you were thinking to now what he thinks. Because I think those are some of the most pivotal parts of our story. What has God used to change you? Because if it's really led to change, it's something you can pass on to your kids and grandkids. So these things are important, but they're important for another reason, and that is it's going to have to do with what we do next week. I want to use these as an illustration of the process that we need to go through every day. And next week, we're going to look at one particular area that potentially every one of us may need to change our thinking. It's an area that possibly all of us might conform to the world and need to be renewed. So today is sort of like a laboratory illustration of what we're going to try to practice next week, Lord willing. So the first one, the first verse has to do with learning for myself for the first time how I could know I'd go to heaven. When I was a little kid, now I, I grew up in church. I was in church all the time. I mean, I, in elementary school, I was in church six days a week because I went to a church school. And uh, I, I remember getting the idea as a very little kid that the most important thing in life seemed to be whether you went to heaven. 
I mean, that just seemed like the kind of the basic, you know, I'm five-year-old kid, six-year-old kid, and you're doing the calculus that you do at that age, and I'm thinking, whatever else is true, the heaven thing seems pretty good. I remember having a Sunday school teacher when I was in elementary school who said to us, when you're thinking about heaven, just think about the thing that to you is the very best thing in life. Think about the thing that is just the most incredible thing you can imagine. Multiply it times 100, that'll be your worst day in heaven. And I remember sitting back, and it was easy for me. I was nine years old. It was easy for me to know what the best thing in life was. I w- Baskin-Robbins had just come out with a 10-scoop Sunday, <laughs> and And I remember seeing the picture of that 10-scoop Sunday and thinking, it just doesn't get better than that. And so I remember thinking, okay, that's my best thing. Maybe if I want to make it a little better, it's, and you're on the beach eating it, and it's not hot enough for the ice cream to melt. You know, if I'm going to go ahead and amplify it a little. But I remember thinking that and thinking, wow, I was just learning multiplication, and I'm thinking a hundred times that. And my first thought was a thousand scoops of ice cream, and I thought that was more than I could eat. But, but the point was, it was good. And I remember one day going up to my minister, we were on the way back to class on a weekday, and you're, not, you're supposed to stay in line, but I didn't, which is, shouldn't surprise some of you. But I got out of line, I thought, I won't get in too much trouble as long as I'm getting out of line to talk to the minister. So I asked him, how can I know that I'd go to heaven? And he scruffed my head and he said, well, you can't know that until the final day of judgment. Just hold on to your faith and do what's right. So I kind of went on that way for the next however many years until I was in college. And in college, some guys I had just gotten to know, some guys who had just invited me into something called a Bible study, I heard them talking about knowing they were going to heaven, and I remember asking one of them later that night, wasn't that kind of presumptuous when you talked about knowing you're going to heaven? And he said, it's not presumptuous if God tells us he wants us to know. And I was kind of taken aback. I thought, but my minister told me you can't. (laughs) He said, well, go get your Bible. So I went and got it, and he asked me to turn to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And I said, you'll have to help me. I don't really know where these are. So he helped me turn, and then he put it in front of me to read, which I think is good. Letting me read it, letting me hear from God rather than him reading it to me. And I read these words, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not the result of works, so that nobody can boast. Now, I was one of those sickening people who was a journalism student with a minor in English. And so the reason that's sick is I immediately noticed the perfect tense being used. You have been saved. And And I noticed it wasn't in the subjunctive mood. It wasn't something like you might be saved or there wasn't like an if clause. It was a stated fact. The reason being a journalism or English major is not a very attractive thing is that I actually used to correct the spelling on Diane's love notes to me (laughs) when we were dating. That's, by the way, and I don't know why this is, I don't know if I've gotten one in the last 40 years. (laughs) Not sure. But... um, but I noticed that it was stated in a really definitive way, 
And so my, th- my only thought was, this is as clear as it can be that salvation is a gift that people can know they have. But I wonder if this is an anomaly. I wonder if this is just like one place in the Bible where it sort of hints that you might be able to know, but what if there's nothing else in the Bible like it? Then how much stock do I put in that one statement? That was the level of my biblical confidence. And I said, is there any other place? He said, there are bunches of them. Once turned to 1 John 5.13, I handed him the Bible. And uh, this is what I read. I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Well, that was case closed for me. I believed it on the spot. Because I believed that what the Bible said was even more authoritative than what my minister had said. I wasn't mad at the minister. I think he gave me his best answer. But from his understanding at age 50 and being in ministry for 25 years or whatever, he didn't know that the Bible taught authoritatively that you can know you're going to heaven and that it's on the basis of your faith, not holding on to something and not doing what's right, that it's a gift that people can know that they have and that that becomes the the foundation of a Christian life. Well, let me tell you, that was the first time that Romans 12, 2 ever happened to me. Because I was being conformed to what I'd been taught. But when I read what the scriptures said, my mind was renewed according to a new truth, that you can know that God offers salvation to you who believe on the only Son of God, he who died for your sins, he who was raised from the dead, and he who offers eternal life to all who believe. That was the first opportunity I ever had to practice this truth, long before I knew this truth. The second thing I remember changing as a young Christian was I had been a Christian. I was in maybe my first year as a believer, and I was noticing I was still sinning. I was noticing that I was still getting defeated on things. I'd find myself going a certain direction for a couple of days, and and in my soul, I knew this wasn't right, and I would try to start back another way, and I just felt like I'm messing up, and I would have challenges. I would have a car wreck, or I would have financial setbacks, or I would have tensions between my parents or other things, things that were painful and difficult, normal things of life, of course. And it was in that time that while in the Bible study, we happened to be reading in the book of Romans. We had read the Gospel of Matthew, and now we were in the book of Romans, and we ran across this verse, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good for them who love God and are called according to his purpose. And that was one of those stop-me moments. God is saying, John, I don't care what it is in your life. I'm not saying it's good. I'm just saying I'm going to use it for good if you'll love me and if you'll be called according to my purpose. For me, that was a life-changing promise. I didn't know the next verse. The next verse told me what it means to be to be called according to his purpose. Notice that verse doesn't say that God uses everything for good for everybody. He just uses it for good for those who love him and those who are called according to his purpose. And the next verse says, for whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. See, that was his purpose. And so the second truth that God let me learn that could actually move from where I was conformed to the world to where I was transformed by the renewing of my mind was, John, in spite of your failure and in spite of the difficulties of this world and in spite of the challenges that you are going to face, which are far more than you have any idea right now at age 19 or 20, 
I want you to know, I promise that as long as you'll seek my face, I will use it for good. Everything. Not everything except disease. Not everything except financial setback. Not any, everything except relational tension. I'll use everything for your good. And folks, that was one of those things that helped change my life. It gave me hope. It reduced my anxiety because I had to believe this is either true or it's not. And if it's true, I'm going to stake my life on it. The third verse God gave me my first year or so as a believer was 1 Corinthians 10, 13, because you see, as I, as I would see myself tempted towards sin, I remember feeling like I'll never get out of this pattern. I'll never get out of my angry, contentious, um, lustful, uh, despairing way of thinking. I'll just always be that guy. I'll always be hot-headed. I'll, I'll always be foul-mouthed. But here's what he said. There is no temptation taking hold of you, but such as is common to man. In other words, John, you're not alone. I've got millions and millions, even billions of people being tempted by the very same things you are. But it says, God will not allow you. God will not allow you. It's not about you, it's about him. God will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you are able, but will provide a means of escape so that you can endure it. And I remember reading and rereading and rereading that for days on end because I believed that God was making a promise to me. John, what I'm promising you is you don't have to give in to sin. I didn't take that verse that what he meant is, if you hold your breath just right, you'll never sin again. I didn't take that. I took it that he was saying, in every given instance, I have made a way that you don't have to sin. I've actually made a way for victory. I didn't know then the verse, 2 Corinthians 2, 14, that said, and we know that God always leads us in triumph in Christ Jesus and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. But that verse ties in with that. He's basically making a promise, just like he made a promise about eternal life, just like he made a promise about using everything for good. He's making a promise, you don't have to be defeated by that sin, and neither do I, praise God. That was me, my mind at age 20 was conformed to the world's message, we all do it. Folks, that's a lie. Everybody does it, it's a lie. Yes, everybody is tempted, yes, everybody falls in some way, we all do, but the idea that everybody lives this sin-continued life is a lie. Why? Well, among other reasons, because... He makes people into new creatures. And he makes a vow to us, I'm going to make it so that you don't have to give in. And the fourth one, the fourth one was when, as a sophomore in college, I was working two jobs, about 30 or so hours a week, and I was going to school full time. My car was on me, my, you know, my expenses, everything was on me. And I just didn't think I was gonna have enough. And I thought I would probably have to drop out. And um, 
somehow in the course of reading, I ran across, and I don't remember if it was in a group. I, groups, I've learned a lot, but I've also learned some reading alone. But I ran across Matthew 6.33, and it was once again one of those stunners, one of those verses that stopped me in my tracks. Because in it, while talking about food and clothing, in other words, necessities, Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And I can remember distinctly making a decision. Will I believe this or will I not? Will I believe what God says or will I go with my gut instinct that says everything is in doubt? Well, by God's grace, over the previous 18 months, I had been learning that God was to be trusted. Because you see, in every place that you move from being conformed to this world to being transformed by renewing your mind, in every single instance, it's going to be an issue of whether you're trusting God. Because your gut's telling you something. Your parents told you something. The world tells you something. And now you're hearing God tell you this, and you have to decide which one's right. It's a trust issue. And so for me, again, just because God had been working grace in me, partly because of the friends I was around, partly because of the church I was in, partly because I was in the Word, partly for all the different reasons that people grow, but it was a decision, I will no longer be conformed to the way I have thought. I will now be transformed through the renewing of my mind. I still didn't know these two verses. I did learn them shortly after, but what I didn't realize is that in the previous 18 months, God had been teaching me Romans 12, 1 and 2. He was teaching me this two-step of Christian maturity. John, will you present yourself to me, trusting me to lead your life? And will you allow your mind to be changed so that it's more in line with mine? Because if you do, I promise, I promise I'm going to use it for good. I want to show you how, once I understood these four verses, how God tied them together for me in my own mind, and I'm going to have a little drawing up here that looks like a corral. This is what it's meant to look like, and I think it does. A, a corral, you know, like, like a horse corral. But if you could imagine this corral is not 60 by 40 or something like this. Imagine that this corral is as big as the world. Because I have lived inside that corral for the last 46 years. And I've gotten to go to Asia and Europe and Africa and South America and Central America and everywhere in North America. Europe. And all of those verses have been my, my boundary posts. They've been my safety. They've been my security because they assured me wherever I was and whatever I was doing, John, you have a home in heaven with me forever. And I settled that with you when you were 19 years old and you believed and you allowed yourself to stop conforming to what the world thinks, but instead be transformed. And not only that, John, but I assured you that you didn't ultimately have to fear the things that happened to you or the things that you even did wrong, ultimately, because I'm going to use them for good for you, provided that you love me and you're called according to my purpose of becoming like my son. And not only do I give you eternal security, and not only do I give you situational security, but I tell you I'm going to give you an earthly spiritual security that you don't have to sin. 
You can choose against it. As you start noticing when I'm beginning to yell at someone I love, when I begin to give the cold treatment, when I pull back, when I'm feeling self-righteous, when I think I have the right to be treated in a certain way, my, this, my scriptures will be whispering in your ear, it ain't so. My glory is more important to me than whether you think you deserve X or Y or Z. Why? So 1 Corinthians 10.13 provides a practical security. I don't have to choose to sin. I don't have to continue to think I'm all that because he's made a way out. And finally, he promises me, and by the way, John, as you run across all the questions of life, how you're going to take care of a family, how you're going to provide for the future, how you're going to do all these things that create fear in all of us, I've made a promise to you that I'm going to meet your needs if you pursue my kingdom and my righteousness. And you can decide whether to believe it or not. And I don't know for you what other verses belong in your corral as corner posts. I had somebody come up last night and share another one with me. I think there are a lot that could fit here. But the point in them is that in each of these deep truths that God teaches us in his scripture, he's doing it to provide a place of security and safety and confidence and hope for you and for me. He, he wants to put boundaries around us of his word so that we can find that place of rest and certainty. Because when we do, we become people increasingly of peace, increasingly of hope. We become pe people who more and more are interested in loving this person than we are in getting them to do for us. It, that's Christian maturity. It's having our mind transformed to believe what God says more than we believe what we instinctively believe and have been taught. I would hope that in the next week, that you're able to think about some other truths from the Bible that possibly God has given you that have also been part of your perimeter of safety and confidence and hope. And next week, the plan is to take this as a foundation and look at an area that I believe runs the risk of us being conformed to the world in a variety of ways. And I would like us to examine it enough to find out what would it mean for us to be transformed to thinking about this issue the way God does. So we have this foundation, and that's where we're going. I'd like to close this in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the fact that you're a God who gives us confidence and hope. Thank you, Lord, for knowing us, knowing our needs. Thank you for your remarkable patience and goodness. I pray, Father, that you would um, help each of us see those places, even today. Where do I need to push away from what I'm naturally conformed to and instead push towards what it means to trust God and his word so that my mind can change? I just want to thank you, Lord. I want to thank you that we have a message of hope for the world. And I just pray that you would use these truths, these principles found in Romans 12, 1 and 2. I pray you would use them to help us as a church to burn more brightly, that, that the Lord Jesus might be magnified, that our homes might be strengthened, and that we might walk forward with the confident 
hope that we have in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.